Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, the host, and we're here with you today on the 14th of June, 2020. We're still in the midst of the COVID thing. We're also in the midst of um, a lot of other things in this country right now, a lot of racial issues, a lot of strange things going on. There's a uh, an autonomous zone that's been created in the city of Seattle in the Capitol Hill area called CHAZ, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone that is now self-governed and self-policed. We live in very strange times, <clears throat> to say the least. And so how do Christians navigate that? What, what did we sign up for? When we were born, what did we sign up for? What did we sign up for when we became Christians, when we took the name of Jesus? I must tell you today that, that many of you were sold a false bill of goods. And that false bill of goods was this. That false bill of goods is you were sold a health and wealth prosperity gospel that is a lie from the pit of hell, not a truth from the mouth of Jesus. So I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about the issues around what does it mean to be a Christian? What is it that you actually did sign up for? And give you an opportunity to re-enlist, re-up um, for something greater, frankly, than health and wealth and prosperity. There's a lot more than that. So if that's what you signed up for, then buckle up, because that's not what you're going to hear today. It's not what you're going to hear from Jesus. It's not what you're going to hear from Paul. It's not the message of the Bible, just so you know. So here we go. So what we've got today is the lessons that we have are, uh, the Old Testament lesson is Exodus 19, verses 1 to 8. It's after they've been through difficult time in the wilderness. They've, they've come out to that place of uh, where the Mara was, the bitter waters, and they have then come into what they would have assumed would have been a wonderful new place in their lives, but it wasn't a wonderful new place in their lives because they had to fight their first literal battle shortly after that. They had to um, defeat the descendants of Amalek, A-M-A-L-E-K. That's chapter 17 in Exodus. They come and they have to fight with Amalek. And remember, these people have just been slaves. They've come out of Egypt. They didn't come out heavily armed. They didn't come out prepared for battle. They were slaves. They weren't trained for battle. But remember what Pharaoh's fear was of these people, that if an enemy rose up against the Egyptians, then the Israelites would fight with them. And so they had numbers on their side. They may not have had the best weaponry. They may not have had everything they needed. They had numbers, and more than that, they had God. And so Amalek comes up and wants to fight against Israel, this band of slaves who are being refugeed by God out of Egypt, and this enemy, this nation comes against them. And they go and fight. And remember, this is when, when Moses stood at the top of the hill with the staff of God in his hand, and he held his hands up, and as long as he did, then things went well for the Israelites. But when his arms got weak and he started to drop, then the other side would prevail. And so Joshua fought brilliantly, and Aaron and Hur were there with Moses, holding his arms up while they defeated this nation. And at the end of that, Moses built an, honoring, an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. 
saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You remember who the first king of Israel was? Saul. You remember why Saul lost his kingship? He was given one task and one task only. Go and destroy Amalek. And he didn't do it. And they lied about it. He blamed it on the people. And he said, oh, I'm going to keep these for sacrifices. I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. The kingdom was stripped from his hand because he didn't destroy that nation. The nation that came after this incredibly vulnerable group of people coming out of Egypt. This was the time to destroy them once and for all. Wicked, wicked nation to attack these refugees who were not even among their territory. They hadn't invaded their territory at all. They came out where the Israelites were and fought against them. These people have already been through so much. It's unbelievable. By the time they come to Mount Sinai, and so they get to Sinai, they came out from Rephidim where they fought with, um, with Amalek, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Vulnerability. Even though there's 600,000 of these people, plus there's a great vulnerability. They encamp in the wilderness. Now, it's a wilderness that Moses happens to know well, because this is the wilderness where he tended his father Jethro's sheep. Jethro has just come out, told Moses what he needs to do in order to lead the people more effectively, and that's to deputize others to do certain things and for him to take on only certain tasks. And here they are. They encamped in the wilderness. And then it says, there Israel encamped before the mountain. That's the next beginning of the next sentence, while Moses went up to God. There's a difference between those two encampments. It's not obvious in the language, <clears throat> in English, but they encamped in the wilderness. They've been through all this difficulty, this hardship in the wilderness, and it's they. It's a third person plural. But then it says, there Israel encamped before the mountains. Whether these are two encampments or not, don't know, don't care. What's important is, is that, that they become singular when they encamp before the mountain of God while Moses goes up. These, these families, these disparate individuals have been through some stuff together and now Israel encamps before the mountain. It's not they anymore. It's Israel. It's one group of people. And that's how it's supposed to work with God's people. We come through difficulties. We stay together. We fight together. We get through those difficulties together. We do it with prayer. We do it with fasting. We do it that way, God's way. And in that, we come together as one. It's easy to be together as one when everything's going well. It's harder when everything's difficult. That's when churches tend to fall apart. That's when relationships tend to fall apart. That's when everything, frankly, tends to fall apart is when things are difficult. But here what's happened is they've successfully come through these difficulties of no water. They've successfully come through the battle with Amalek, and now they're one. Israel encamped before the mountain. They're not just the people of Israel anymore. They're Israel. 
they're one group of people. And then they go through and they say, the Lord called out to the mountain saying, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Did you hear that? If you will obey and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. Then you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're not there yet. Are you going to obey my voice and are you going to keep my commandments? So then Moses came and spoke to the elders. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Do you see something there? They didn't say individually, All that the Lord has spoken, I will do. No, they're not the people of Israel anymore. They're Israel. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. When we do marriage, we do something interesting and unique, I think. And I think it's something that should be done at all Christian weddings, whatever denomination you might be. I ask the bride and groom to make certain commitments to one another. And when they make those commitments to one another, this is early in the service, then I look at the congregation and I say, well, all you who are gathered here today do all within your power to uphold these people in the covenant that they've just made. So what I've done is I've included, because this is what the prayer book has me do, this is what's been done in the Anglican church for 500 years. It gathers people together and it says we're all part of the covenant of this marriage. They've made certain commitments to one another. They made those commitments publicly and they made them before God. And now I'm asking you, if you're here today, you're here because these people cared about you and they believe you care about them. And so we're asking those people in the congregation at that moment to make a commitment, not to two people, but to the marriage. Will you do everything in your power to uphold these persons in this covenant of marriage? And that's what's happening here. There's a covenant of marriage that's going to be undertaken between God and his people that will become his treasured possession among all peoples. Be the kingdom of priests and the holy nation. There's a wedding ceremony happening here. And when this happens, the people aren't taking just an individual commitment. They're making an individual commitment. But in making the individual commitment, what they're also saying when they say, we will do, is they're saying, I will hold the person on my right, on my left, in front of me, in back of me, on either side of me, responsible for this as well. We speak as one. There is no division among this people. We will hold one another accountable. That's not the only time in the Anglican world when we take that same sort of vow as a congregation. We also do it when we baptize. That congregation commits itself to the raising and the nurturing of that child, adult, whatever we got. They make a commitment as one people, not each individual person, but as a congregation, we make a commitment and a vow to the Lord. I'm asking you, do we take those things seriously? 
If we did, we would not walk away from friendships through marriage as easily as we do. We would also not allow things to get out of control in a marriage such that divorce happens. We, as a body of Christ, make commitments to one another. We make commitments to children that we baptize as well. How do we carry that out? Yes, there are godparents, but the church, the people of the church, make a vow to care for them and to make sure that they stay on the path of commitment. It's an important thing as Christians for us to know this and to see here in this marriage ceremony where God and the nation come together, that there's a coming together truly of the nation to be one people and to make one vow and declaration in the covenant of marriage. We tend to lose that in Christianity because it becomes so individualistic that we don't recognize and understand the importance of the community that we're in, the community called the church, the community that's, that's the extended church, which is all Christians. So if I'm in the gym, my buddies who are Christians, I'm responsible for their commitments as well because we're brothers in Christ, we're sisters in Christ. And so theoretically, if one of us sees something doing something that, that would compromise our witness in any way, we ought to be confronting one another on that. We ought to be holding one accountable for the vows that we have made in our baptism. It's important for us to take those vows seriously. And that's the reason I believe it's important to do that as a congregation, whether that's at a wedding or whether it's at a baptism. It's important for us to keep the vows we make, especially the vows we've made to the Lord and to one another in Christ. That that doesn't have anything in the world to do with, with uh, health and wealth and prosperity, does it? No, it has to do with something God thinks is more important than my comfort, and that's my character. He cares more about my character. That's the important thing, who I am, because I'm his representative. I'm his treasured possession. I'm a kingdom, a part of a kingdom of priests. I'm a part of a holy nation. Then my character is what truly matters. And so he asks them to commit to character which is keeping my commandments and obeying my voice before they can receive the promised land. And so the commitment to character outstrips everything. And we see that then in the Romans passage as well. Paul starts well, man. He starts like, this is great. This is great. We've got exactly what's proclaimed in so many churches. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And it's all true. And it's all great. It's wonderful. Who would, who would say, oh my gosh, I don't want that. I don't want peace with God. I don't want access by faith into his grace. I don't want to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. No, everybody wants that. That's all wonderful stuff. But then he goes on and why he does it, it's like, come on. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I, not often. <laughs> I don't. I honestly don't. And I don't rejoice when I suffer. And, and most of the people that I know don't rejoice in their sufferings. Not as an initial reaction, at least. It's maybe later when God's shown me some things about that. But not certainly in the beginning of it. I, all I want is out. 
I want out of the situation that's producing the suffering. But Paul says the thing is that suffering produces endurance. You don't get that by suffering for 15 minutes. Suffering, he says, produces endurance. And then endurance produces character because it's like being crushed and pressed. And I can't deal with this anymore. No, I can't deal with it anymore. But I have ways out of this suffering. I could take matters in my own hands. I could steal and, and relieve my financial distress. I could leave my wife and leave the stress and the pressure of fighting with her and dealing with her. And She probably doesn't have anything to do with dealing with me. That's easy stuff. But no, we've got to deal with stuff, with suffering. And suffering, he says, produces endurance and endurance produces character. You come out the other side of that a different person. It's exactly the same things that James says. It's exactly the same stuff Peter says. These guys seem to have some sense that suffering was going to be part of life. Too much American theology doesn't make room for that at all. In fact, the only place that it has for suffering is if you're suffering, then you come to God. And God will give you everything you need. And you won't have to suffer anymore. In fact, if you're suffering, it's probably a sign that you're far from God. Ah. Absolutely infuriates me. I've seen it. I've heard it from Christians. It, it, it is the worst form of Christianity to say things like that. Paul suffered more than any human being you'll ever say. If you doubt that, read 2 Corinthians 11, where he details that suffering for you. And he's saying that over against those who claim to be super apostles. Because they have everything. They have it made. But Paul says, no, suffering is important. It produces endurance, which produces character. It produces a different kind of human being. It produces a godly person. Because it produces somebody who is reliant on him, who knows their own weakness, knows their own limitations, and now is changed into the kind of person who in the midst of times like these that we live in has something because of that character, the character being shaped by God, the character of being reliant on him to understand that he is in control even when everything else seems out of control. Paul says that character matters and here's why. Because it produces hope. You want hope? Jesus, when he first came back, when he meets the disciples in the room behind their locked doors, the first thing he says to them is shalom. Peace. My peace I give you. All right. I can rest in that for about 15 minutes because the next week they're back behind locked doors and Thomas is there with them and he comes in and he says it again. Peace. Hope is a product of suffering, character, and then hope. Because I've been through the storms, and I know that there's something better on the other side of that. And then he says, hope doesn't put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, people like us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we've been invited through baptism into the covenant of marriage, into the community 
the people of God. Because the bride is not me. The bride is his church. And so we come through this. But we don't come through it alone. We have the Lord with us. And if we're fortunate, we have better friends than Job. And so we have others, Christian brothers and sisters, who come alongside us in times of suffering. And they don't do what Job's friends did and say, well, there must be hidden sin in your life. There must be unconfessed sin. There must be things we don't know about you. If you just do this, no, no. We need Christian brothers and sisters who will come along beside us and share in our sufferings with us, fully invested in us for the kingdom of God because what they want is they want us to get to that place where hope can come in. So we shouldn't be enduring with gritted teeth alone in the basement. We need to be in the community that's there to comfort us and that's there to rejoice with us that's there to lift us up in prayer, that's there to lift us up in every single possible way. And Jesus sets the model for that, and that's the gospel for today. Jesus went through all the cities and villages, this is Matthew 9, 35 to 10, 23. Went, I'm not going to read it all. So. <laughs> went through the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He sees. He sees the sheep. He sees the people who are harassed and helpless without a shepherd. And he goes and he gives the good news of the gospel of the coming of the kingdom, but he also heals every disease and every affliction. Then he calls the 12 to him. He gives them authority over unclean spirits to heal every disease and every affliction, just like he had done. And then he sent them out. He said, go nowhere among the Gentiles, and there are no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. He didn't say just go preach. He said, nope, I've given you authority. Use the authority you've been given. Do the work that I'm doing. That's the inbreaking of the kingdom. It, it, the signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom are people being healed. Because that's what was intended for us. Is for healing. We live amongst illness, particularly right now. We live amongst people who are not at peace. We live amongst all kinds of things right now. And what we need more than anything else is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And Christians, that's you. So he's given you authority and told you to go and do this. And but then he goes and he says, You receive without pay and give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, two tunics, sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. He says, don't take anything with you. You know, I've been on plenty of mission trips, and whenever we go on a mission trip, we are so prepared. We leave absolutely nothing to chance. Jesus says, just go. Don't bother with all that preparation. I sent you. Go. You'll be provided for. And then he says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And after you enter the house, agree that the house is worthy, let your peace come on it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace come back to you. And if people won't receive you or listen to you, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town and then go on. 
But then he says, see, this is the part where American Christianity really hates this, right? I mean, never hear it. Behold, I'm sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. And it's not going to be easy, fellas. It's going to be really hard. You're going to be put into a terribly vulnerable position. So you'd be wise as serpent, but then some doubts. You've got to know the times. But your conduct and your character has to be above that. I want you to understand what you're going into, but I don't want you to be like that. Beware of men, for they'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Why? To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So you don't have to go to the Gentiles. You'll be taken to the Gentiles because people are going to turn you over to those law courts that are run by the Romans, not by the Jews. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious about how you're going to speak or what you're going to say for what yours to say will be given to you in that hour. So just trust me even in that. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And then to make it even better, brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father is child and children will rise against the parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Sounds exciting, Jesus. Wasn't really what I was hoping for. Wasn't really the bill of goods that I was sold when I went to that church. I, I accepted you for better. We mean for worse. I, I thought that all ended at the cross. I thought you bore all the suffering in the world. I thought all the shame and everything else came upon you. What do you mean it's going to be hard? He says, if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. What did Paul say about endurance? It produces character, which produces hope. Know what you signed up for. But know that you're not alone. Jesus says, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. And then he sends his spirit on Pentecost to be with you. But if you're a Christian, shouldn't be alone. Shouldn't be alone in this world. You meet, you're meant to be part of the body of Christ. You're meant to be part of a community who is pursuing holiness, who is pursuing righteousness, who is pursuing him. You're meant to be part of that body because if you're not, you're probably not growing is the honest truth. If there aren't people in your life who are holding you accountable, who wag the bony finger at you when you go the wrong way, then, then you're incredibly vulnerable. You're not in a good place. We need people in our lives to point the bony finger at us because what the goal is, is to reveal him in the world. Through us. We're intended to be, as Peter says, exactly the same thing that the people in Exodus were told they would be. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. And you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Peter says that's who we, the church, are intended to be. We're to step into those shoes. Can we say truly and honestly today, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, in spite of the fact that He makes a promise that if you do, it's going to be really difficult. But what are we pursuing? What is our summum bonum, our highest prize, our highest goal, the thing that means more to us than anything else? Is it health and wealth and prosperity? Or is it the kingdom of God? Because the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved.
What do we sign up for? Think about it. Pray about it. Sign up for it again. It's worth it. But do it with open eyes, knowing what you're called to. But knowing that as you follow him, you will see him in ways that you could never have imagined and that you've never experienced before when everything was good and everything was perfect. I'm not saying it'll be easy. Jesus never, ever promised that. But what he did promise is his presence. Is that enough? Is that enough? He cares more about your character than your comfort. Largely because he carries, cares everything about your soul and your eternity. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. Thanks for being along on the journey. Again, if you've got any comments or questions, if you have prayer requests, please make those um, in, the, in the comments below on the Facebook page that will be linked down there. I hope you have a blessed week, and I hope that the Lord reveals himself to you in fresh new ways. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for all you are, and we rejoice in the words of Psalm 100. Be joyful in the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with a song. Know this, the Lord himself is God. He himself has made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and call on his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his faithfulness endures from age to age.